London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. For this, the second episode of the podcast, I traveled to Indianapolis, Indiana, to speak with Jungian analyst and author J. Gary Sparks about his book, At the Heart of Matter, Synchronicity and Jung's Spiritual Testament, published by Inner City Books. Gary has a degree in electrical engineering, a Master of Divinity from Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, and a Diploma in Analytical Psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, where his thesis advisor was Marie-Louise von Franz, and his training analysts included Jung's grandson Dieter Baumann and Jung's lifelong friend C.A. Meyer. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information about Gary, as well as links to the books we discuss. There, you'll also see links on how to find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Just a note about audio quality. When I decided to create this podcast, I thought I would be recording Skype calls on my computer. I didn't expect I'd get the opportunity to travel and conduct the interviews in person. I used lapel microphones to record on my iPad, and audio editing is still very new to me, so I want to apologize for the fluctuation in sound levels that you'll hear. As I asked in the beginning of the first episode, please bear with me as I learn more about it, and I thank you. Let us begin. So I'm here at the home office of Jungian analyst and author J. Gary Sparks. Thanks for having me today. Well, thanks for the chance to talk. About a year ago, I decided that the next book I would tweet would be about synchronicity because I think I hear that word misused more than any other Jungian term. That's for sure. And it kind of drives me crazy. So I wanted to set the record straight and I wanted to turn to a Jungian analyst to discuss the word synchronicity because Jung is the one who first coined the term. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was back in what year, the 1950s? You know, I think the very first time I saw use of the word was 1928 mm. in those English seminars we, we mentioned. The just one line. Right. Um, he didn't really publish on it until probably the early 50s mm -hmm. and uh, wrote began writing essays about it and tried to do an experiment to check its, quote, scientific validity. And really, it was that the encouragement of Wolfgang Pauli that he even had the courage to start doing that much. But you mentioned in your book that there were signs early on in his writings about the concept of synchronicity, but he didn't want to write about it. Right. Because Jung wanted to be seen as a scientist. Yes, I think even on your website, uh, don't you have a, a note that he had written somebody in America asking him to contribute to a, a journal? And he wrote in a little postcard that, oh, yes. uh, don't, don't you have that up there? Yeah. I wrote in a postcard. Tweeted it. You know, yeah, oh, me tweeted it, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, 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 why would I bother? You're just going to call me a mystic anyway. Right. I think he was really sick and tired of being misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And held back because it is a kind of a controversial subject, controversial in the sense that there's no accepted, quote-unquote, scientific uh, explanation for it. But when Pauli came along and said publish, he uh, he developed the, the courage to do that. Mm -hmm. So what prompted that relationship between Jung and when you, you mentioned Pauli, you're talking about the physicist yes. Wolfgang Pauli. Wolfgang Pauli. 
was one of the guys who developed quantum physics, and the, it's called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mm-hmm. uh, mechanics. Mechanics means physics. Um, that was done in 1828. Pauli got a job teaching at the Technical University in Zurich. Mm-hmm. 1920 or 1929, he moved moved to Zurich. He had some personal crises and began drinking and ended up in Jung's consulting room. Mm -hmm. Jung referred him out to a female analyst. Within about a year, he had his feet back on the ground. Uh, Came back to Jung as a kind of professional friendship, you might say. And in that uh, phase of Pali's life, they continued uh, discussion of some psychological issues, some... Uh, meaning personal psychological issues, some mm-hmm. more theoretical issues. Um, the relationship evolved from there on, but that's how they met. Mm-hmm. Pauli encouraged Jung to explore this concept, and Jung was open to Pauli's opinions because of Pauli's high esteem as yeah. a scientist. I mean, you know, Jung really did try to be a scientist, meaning to always show the experience on which a theory is based. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that these synchronistic experiences aren't repeatable, and that's science's litmus test for what's real. Having Pallis, as a scientist, say these are valid facts, meant a great deal to Jung, that this is worthy, uh, these are facts that exist, mm-hmm. and this is worthy of discussing. And you mentioned in your book that in 1928, Jung received a translation of a Chinese Taoist text that describes the process of meditation and enlightenment in exactly the same metaphor that Jung had established for the process of healing. Yes. That's very interesting. Would you say a little bit about that? Well, that that year, those years, 1928 uh, to 1930, when Jung received that book, and then Pali came into his life, that's a that's a very um, rich watershed period in Jung's life. What Jung had noticed prior to the time he received the text is that healing is a inborn capacity of the personality. Mm-hmm. Freud was the theorist in vogue at the time, and for Freud, the ego, the conscious personality, has to make change happen. Jung realized that's too simplistic. There's a process in us that can, if we relate to it correctly, initiate growth from within. That's what Jung eventually would come to call the self. That's the same process that the secret of the golden flower depicted. Basically, if the, the process involves facing a conflict, and then if we endure the conflict, a third element enters into our emotional life to help us resolve that conflict. That's exactly the paradigm depicted in this Taoist meditative text. Mm-hmm. You said similarities in the pattern of illustrations in the text, and you're referring to the secret of the golden flower, to those that Jung had found in his inner self-examination, or what gave him the courage to say that he had found a process in human nature that is inborn and transcultural, that we had, what he had found was not something imbibed from any cultural system. Right. That's really important. Yeah. And So that shift, when you 
uh, th those those uh, um, Chinese pictures showed a um, adept meditating, and as he meditated, a, a being emerged from him, and a plurality of beings uh, existed above him. And as he stayed with his meditative state, those pluralities turned into an image of his uh, enlightenment. So that the singularity bringing together all those various parts is exactly what Jung saw in the psyche when we carry a complex emotional situation and something happens to bring those pieces into harmony. Mm -hmm. And Jung said of uh, Wilhelm, it seems to me as if I had received more from him than from any other man. Yes, th this is what brought Jung out of the, I call it his night scene journey. You know, right. when, he, when he split from Freud in 1913, he went through a tough time. Uh, it's been variously uh, described as an illness and God knows what. I call it that Jung became pregnant with the 21st century at wow. the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. What was happening to him was the birth of a whole new point of view. And that point of view was solidified in that confirmation in the secret of the golden flower of a dynamism he had seen operating within the psyche. And that's really the foundation of all of Jungian psychology. Two is resolved through a third. Mm-hmm. You end that section by saying, naturally, its non-causal character had struck Jung forcibly. Right. So we're setting the groundwork for the concept of synchronicity. Right. Is what you're doing in the book. And I love the book because I actually have a background in uh, quantum mechanics. And so I love how you lay out how this started. And the introduction of Pauli in Jung's life, how significant that was. And... Because of that, you've also explored Pauli's life right. and Pauli's dreams and how important they were. Yes. Would you say a little bit about that? Well, Pauli was able to return to a more or less normal life after that work with the female analyst and with, I think, some emotional support from Jung. The really important part of Pauli's life, as far as I'm concerned, comes after World War II. He had to leave Switzerland because of uh, a Jewish heritage. Had the Nazis invaded, he would have certainly been deported. Right. <clears throat> and when the bombs went off, he became terribly depressed and started having fits of anger, apparently, fits of rage. And he said he, he felt like he was living in a criminal atmosphere. Um, went back to Zurich and be, returned back to his dreams with renewed interest. He had asked his dreams, this much he had learned from Jung earlier, and when you hit a block, step back, see what your dreams say. Mm -hmm. So he turned to his dreams and he said to his dreams, what's gone wrong? What do we need to learn out of this catastrophe that we don't keep repeating the mass destruction that we've seen in World War II? And his dreams from that period, uh, from 1945 to to 58, probably uh, 13 years worth of material, uh, are extremely rich, showing from his unconscious point of view the dynamics that are going on in history that we need to understand to prevent another disaster. Mm -hmm. Early on in the book, you break down Jung's life into four phases. Yes. And what was surprising to me is that you say that 
the real guts of Jung came out in his writing after 1944. Yes. That was also the period of time when he was willing to publish on synchronicity. And that Pauli was back in Zurich and they were in dialogue. It must have been an incredibly fertile time. And that was maybe prompted by his uh, major illness that he had. Yeah, he had a heart attack. 44? Had a heart attack and... um, I think he had, he fell, broke his foot, and then heart, had a heart attack in one one day, and essentially was dead, died, but was brought back, or at least in his experience, he felt himself being pulled away, uh, going to the beyond mm-hmm. in, in his delirium around the heart attack. Uh, but a voice called him back, and mm-hmm. he thought, "Oh, damn! Okay, I'll come back." Um, and having sort of become a Lazarus, said, well, you know, I could be dead. Why don't I say it just as I see it? Mm-hmm. Up to that point, he had tried to write in a way that a sympathetic reader could understand. And then he said, you know, hey, this hasn't got me anywhere. You're still calling me a mystic. I'm just going to tell it like I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said that he did not write his last works with the reader in mind as he had done previously which is why these last works are relatively difficult to understand, like synchronicity. Yeah. Right? Rather, his last works were written with the integrity of the material in mind. Yes. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, the thing that he was devoting himself to, or the process he was devoting himself to, was the inner images. Rather than make a great effort to build a bridge between the image and the reader, he just talked about the images. Uh, he did that in uh, Mysterium Canunctionis, mm-hmm. which is a study of alchemy. Uh, his book Ion, which is a study of um, the imagery which goes along with historical changes. He did that in his book Psychology of the Transference, which is a study of psychological imagery in erotic relationships mm-hmm. and therapy. <clears throat> the erotic feelings that come up in therapy. And what he tried to do is simply present image after image after image that he had seen in his experience and then talk about what it meant. If you're not used to the inner journey, this sounds mighty strange. Right. He assumed you were interested in the uh, inner journey, and if you weren't, he made no effort to get you into it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned alchemy, Mm -hmm. and I really like the way you describe it in your book. You say of the alchemists, they cooked, chopped, baked, and prayed, recording their recipes in the symbolic language of a pre-scientific mind. Jung studied their writings as metaphors to understand how the psyche tries to heal itself through transforming the difficult part of our personality into something of value and sustenance, through the inner healing process, in other words. Yes. The... um the parallel between what we just, what you just read, let's say, in the secret of the golden flower, is that there is a process with fairly predictable stages, fairly predictable ranges of imagery that show how, when we fall apart, when we are chopped up, that something gets started in us to bring us back together. Right. And that thing that brings us back together is a deeper understanding of who we are, a more comprehensive grasp of our personality, and a renewed and committed relationship to the world around us. Mm -hmm. 
So we end up better than when we started. We don't just try to get people back to normal. We try to get them into themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people might be wondering right now what all of this has to do with the concept of synchronicity. The um, I think the underlying <coughs> the underlying theme or phenomenon is this is not causal. Mm-hmm. We set the stage for the healing process. Then the healing process occurs or doesn't occur on its own. We don't make it happen. Mm-hmm. We create the condition for its happening. And that healing process has a purpose. The cause, even if we could say, well, this is where it started, the cause doesn't explain the purpose. Synchronicity is the same. Synchronicities can't be described causally. They simply occur. One day you're walking down the street, and um, you see in front of you the image you had the night before in a dream. And the purpose of the event is to underscore what you've just experienced. Or you've had a dream and you see the next day an image which could be understood as the next step in that dream. Right. So that it's not just replaying the dream, it's carrying the dream forward. So that the key word for a synchronistic experience is, what's the purpose of it? Purpose and non-causality link Jung's understanding of the healing process and his understanding of synchronicity. So once and for all, what is the definition of synchronicity? Well, how I frame it is it's a a non-causal, meaningful coincidence between an inner state of mind and an outer event. Uh, I I might try to make it a little more specific between an inner image mm-hmm. and the appearance of that image in the outer world. the For me, the key is the synchronicity either replays a dream. Now, that's a little too narrow, but okay. as a starting definition, I don't think it has to be a dream, but say, uh, for the sake of argument, replays a dream on the inside in the outer world or it continues the image that we know in a dream in the outer world. Mm-hmm. So that the, if to give you, a, this is sort of occurring to me as we talk, you might say synchronicity is a dream in the outer world. Mm-hmm. And the inner and the outer aspects are necessary in order for it to be technically synchronicity. Yes. The inner and the outer are reflecting each other. Are reflecting each other. Yeah, that's probably a better way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say that the outer reflects the inner, but I think it's better to say they reflect each other. Mm-hmm. Would you give us an example? Maybe one of your favorite examples um, of synchronicity? Let me think. Um, well, the one I think I mentioned in um, At the Heart of Matter is probably the most dramatic I've ever seen. Uh, um, a woman dreams of being gang raped mm-hmm. over time. That became a dream of a rape by an unknown man. Over more time, that became a dream of her first boyfriend. Mm -hmm. I said, well, let's see if we can find this guy. She was raised here in Indianapolis, uh, near east side, kind of a rough part of town, and went back and asked uh, around town if anyone had seen him. Since high school, the story came out that she was in love with this boy, 
but her mom forbid the relationship, so she gave it up with a broken heart. She came back and said, well, nobody's heard from him. We don't know where he is. <clears throat> I said, well, don't worry. The next dreams we can anticipate from the previous dreams will continue evolving this forward. She came back the following week telling me that he had called from out of state and simply said, we have some things to talk about. So what they, what she realized was how much she admired him for his intellectual uh, gifts and discipline. She was very intelligent, was not terribly disciplined, and realized that she had always wanted to finish her college degree. She mm -hmm. went back to college and um, got her degree, and the dream stopped. So, you know, what strikes me in that kind of instance, the synchronicity moved that dream forward. She could have dreamt that that guy talked to her and told her about why he was so important to her, but it didn't happen in a dream. It happened in outer reality. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't take the dream literally. No. The, the image of being gang raped, you didn't take that literally. You looked at right. that symbolically. Right. I, of course, first asked, was there anything like this in your life? Right. She said, no. I've never been raped, never been. So we rule out the literal first. I would always, particularly with abusive imagery, check whether it's real or symbolic. It can always be both, but this wasn't real. This wasn't real, real. It was symbolically real. Mm -hmm. So with synchronicity, you say that the psyche is something much more than what we think it is. It's also material. That's the big discovery. Yeah. Where did her dream occur? Mm -hmm. It occurred inside her, and it occurred outside her. So the fact that dream images can occur outside of us leads to the conclusion that the psyche must also be part of the material world. And this idea we have that there are spiritual things, material things, there are inner things, there are outer things, uh, that simply doesn't hold true in synchronistic experiences. Mm -hmm. You say, how can matter operate symbolically, communicating knowledge in advance of our own? How can physical events in time and space act exactly the same way that a dream does? The experience of synchronicity leads us to reevaluate our understanding of the psyche, since obviously it is not only inside us. This was Jung's last, or one of his last discussions with von Franz. Mm. Uh, it's in a interview with her at uh, diamond.ch, okay. Diamond Verlag. Uh, it's called Balligan, I think, 1982. <clears throat> she says. Jung reported that he spent his life working on the psyche inside the individual. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he says, I only have one lifetime. But he knew very well that the psyche exists on the outside in the material world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the implication is, you know, you guys take it from here. Now, synchronicity is one of those examples where... I believe he would like to see more research done. Mm -hmm. I can think of several things that could be done. Uh, that's just one. Any place where we see the material world operating 
symbolically would be relevant to that statement you just made. I think you see it in disease. Uh, I think you see it in erotic attraction. And I'd like to try to show how you see it in history. Mm -hmm. Another concept of Jung's that's important to his theory of synchronicity is that of the psychoid right. archetype. Right, Kind of a confusing word. It's going back to his theory of archetypes to make a rather complex, evolved story um, palatable. Let's just say Jung asked himself, why are there dreams in the first place? Mm -hmm. And the reason there are dreams in the first place is that there was something in us making those dreams. One way to say what is inside us making those dreams is, is the uh, archetype. Archetype is the capacity of the psyche to generate images. It's an inborn capacity. And since we know that image creating occurs not only inside us, but outside us, in the example of that dream, somehow the image-creating faculty must belong to the material world as well. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? He doesn't have a clue, neither do I. Von Franz tried to examine that in her book, Number in Time. That's a bit off our discussion at the moment. But how do we... What way do we have of conceptualizing that the material world has the capacity to operate symbolically like a dream. And I just would like to add that you have written a second book called Valley of Diamonds, yes. Adventures in Number and Time, where you explore von Franz's yes. book. Yes. Hopefully, you'll agree to do a second interview, sure. and we'll discuss that book. That sounds great. So, for now, we're staying with the first book you wrote, yes. At the Heart of Matter, right. Synchronicity and Jung's... A causality, synchronicity, the externalization of the psyche mm -hmm. are, are the main themes of that book. Right. So, But you're not only looking at what is the nature of the psyche, but also what is the nature of matter. What's the nature of matter? And I think that's where Pauli comes in. That's where he comes because in. Because Jung was looking at the psyche. Yeah. Pauli was looking at matter, his work in quantum mechanics, we should also note, earned him a uh, Nobel Prize. Yes. You also, in your book, look at the parallels between the two men, and you show timelines of their lives and the similarities. What did you see? Well, they came together at critical points in both their lives. The first point we mentioned was when Jung was just getting his feet on the ground uh, after his night sea journey, 1928 to... 30, say, Pali enters his life. And then when Jung began his deepest writing, Pali re-entered his life as, again and um, was part of the discussion that Jung carried on around some of these major books. Mm -hmm. And you also saw a parallel between quantum mechanics and depth psychology. There are several parallels. I think given our current theme, what was so comforting to Jung, and where Pali could really play a key role, is that quantum mechanics also doesn't speak about causality. Right. The, the movements of the electron in the atom don't proceed causally. They talk uh, about probabilities of movement, not trajectories that can be predicted starting point A, starting point B. Pali and Jung, I think, both ran into the dilemma 
that quantum mechanics doesn't talk about meaning. For Jung, these non-causal events are meaningful. For Pauli, the and for quantum mechanics, the movement of the electron is is not in any way tied. Described as meaningful, but I think what meant a lot to Jung was Pali could say, but that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Science cannot investigate meaning, and uh, I think a certain percentage of scientists would say, "Period, end of story." Pali would say, "No, there's much more we need to do to refine the way we look at life." to have a point of view that can see meaning as an object of scientific inquiry. Mm -hmm. And you also say that our understanding of reality is inadequate and that science can't explain synchronicity. And you said that's not the problem of synchronicity, that's the problem of science. But uh, you will hear from certain hard-nosed scientists, and I do think this has, this has changed to a certain extent since uh, Pauli's time, is that there's no such thing as synchronicity because our th- theories don't uh, have any way of explaining it. Pauli, as a real scientist, said, hey, wait a minute, our job is facts. These are facts. It's the problem of science that we, we can't understand them. And the, I think if when, when we recognize the themes that that are underlying our, our discussion here, a causality, the, um, the purposive nature of experience, mm-hmm. the indistinguishability between inner and outer, all of this works against the Western idea where there's a will, there's a way. Because they all of those phenomena embody movements which are not willed. Hmm. So it makes us realize there are things about life that can make things happen which are not based in willpower. Mm-hmm. It really borders on the East at that point. And that's scary to some people. If your dominant paradigm is to control everything, yeah. uh, this says, uh, sure, you can control everything, but that doesn't create a meaningful life. You say Pauli's unconscious was alive with imagery, and he was trying to come to grips with it. Yes. There were, um, depending on how you count, I'd say three or four main images in Pauli's dreams. One was an image he called the stranger, Mm -hmm. and the stranger, in Pauli's own words, would represent the archetypal background of science, meaning that we think science is logical, but it is really founded on a tacit understanding of life, uh, another uh, which is which is shaped by uh, emotional factors. Another image was the image of the Chinese woman. Here we get into synchronicity. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine was lecturing in Japan on synchronicity, and uh, a guy came up to him after after the lecture. This is a, a European colleague. Uh, came up to him after the lecture and said, thank you for lecturing on synchronicity. Now I understand what causality is. Mm. That causal framework is as foreign to his mind as our synchronistic framework is to ours. Yeah. So that the oriental image could very well have to do with these, uh, with the nature of reality that synchronicity does exist. Another image is the image of Sophia, uh, which would have to do with the spiritual meaning of sexuality, I think. 
and he dreamt, had dreamt more than once about the nature of time not being adequately understood by the scientific mind. Mm-hmm. Um, these were all questions. He didn't answer any of them. We don't have answers for any of them. But what I liked about him is he had the integrity to say, I don't understand these, but these are valid questions. Mm-hmm. And his dreams, Pauli's dreams, were what you call collective dreams. Yes. You mentioned that Jung said it was the people who were worrying about the world's problems, like Pauli, Pauli. who had the collective dreams. Right. That Pauli was really concerned about what his physics had produced, that he was a brooding, guilt-ridden, volatile character, and he was having these dreams that thankfully were recorded because here we are all these years later talking about them. Still talking about them, and I wish we would talk about them more. Certainly is one of my great frustrations that I think, I think I'm safe to say this, all these books that are coming out about Pali, none of them deal with his dreams. Mm-hmm. None of them deal with his dreams in any depth. And for my tastes, uh, it doesn't matter that Jung and Pali had tea on a Thursday. Right. It matters what his dreams were saying. And for my tastes, uh, his dreams are, are one of the most important documents of the soul of our, of our time, the Red Book being another. Mm-hmm. You said in Pauli there was an enormously creative response on the part of the unconscious to the problems of our time. And people might be wondering, why are we even talking about him? You also mentioned that Pauli was a guy whose work has shaped everything that we do. Quantum physics brought in the nuclear age, nuclear power, the A-bomb, the H-bomb, computers, technology, both come out of quantum physics. And just as an aside, quantum physics is physics of matter at the micro level. Yes. Okay. And because he had such a strong impact on civilization, the unconscious responds with equal intensity to the effect that he had on our times. Yes. Another thing that you said about Pauli that I love, you said people who knew both him and Einstein said that Pauli was the more brilliant. That's what I've heard. Yes. He apparently his intellect was utterly formidable. Mm-hmm. And uh, that may have been part of what made him a bit of an irascible character. But, you know, why bother with these dreams? Because uh, they, they really do address a question which is pressing, particularly when you hear that Putin has decided to up his uh, nuclear arsenal. Right. Um, how do we avoid another Hiroshima and another Nagasaki? Uh, on a more subtle level, it's the... It's an attempt to get at the bottom of our technological lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a psychiatrist recently. Um, This is not something that we would too terribly deal with in in the analytic work. Um, But psychiatrists who are working with very, very traumatized people, um, the, the report or I think the understanding is it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. More and more traumatized people are showing up, not just from Afghanistan and wherever, but from the job. Yeah. The technological pressures are damaging the psyche to the point where measured physiological damage can be observed in brain scans. And that's the technological world that Pali's dreams are attempting to address. Yeah. You you ask, what does the unconscious see as the solution? Here, it's not Jungian kindergarten. It doesn't give us the answers. It gives us the questions. Yeah. And I think 
our task now, and I'm talking about a task uh, over several hundred years, is to begin asking new questions. What is the nature of reality? What is the nature of inner and outer? What is the nature of time? What is the um, nature of things that we don't control? How do we understand that? Not as intellectual questions, but merely but to begin to examine how must we change to entertain the importance of these questions. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that Pauli's dreams appeared to give an answer to this problem, the problem of how can we live with nuclear power, because they show a way to another kind of knowledge of nature. Yes, this non-causal, spontaneous sequence of events that seems to proceed with a mind of its own. Mm -hmm. And the Western error is thinking it has to make things happen rather than learn to let things happen. Mm. You said as far as Pauli's unconscious is concerned, what science calls knowledge is only one dimension of knowledge. Right. And that he wasn't some New Age bookstore owner, not no. that there's anything wrong with New Age bookstore owners, that this was the guy who was at the heart of the hardest and most advanced research in science. He was, by all accounts, the scientist of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, we could just put a little parenthesis here, what is science? Science, as it's wrongly conceived, is an established set of laws. Mm -hmm. Properly conceived, it's a methodology. It's a methodology for experimenting, uh, for investigating data that we have no system that can categorize it. And Pauli was one of the latter. He didn't hide behind scientific theories. He said, these are all important questions. And it's important to look at Pauli's dreams because you mentioned that creative discoveries are usually preceded by the processes appearing in dreams. Yeah, that's a whole other um, discussion right there. One of the things he tried to do, and now I'm taking that question and making it just a little bit more specific. Sure. Um, you know, the idea um, that we're dealing with here is, is there a way to live that is not based on imposing our will on somebody else. Mm -hmm. Technology is basically about imposing our will on matter. And he was interested in seeing, is there a way that we can live without imposing the will? And I think what his dreams are articulating is the critical importance of doing that. You said that our way of looking at things is going to go through another development. Yeah, I think it has to. We've yeah. got to find another way to live other than the imposition of will. Mm -hmm. And the imposition of will over matter and nature. Mm -hmm. And that science and spirituality are going to have to come together. The unconscious says that they're the same. And that's where we get stuck. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, Pauli dreamt of <clears throat> going into his lab and, and a mass was being conducted. Mm -hmm. Or going into a church and the priest was doing a scientific experiment. Mm -hmm. And the unconscious, there was no difference between science and religion. I think for me, the answer has to do with symbolic living. The error is thinking that science is a linear logical process. 
on the scientific side and on the religious side, that it's a metaphysical experience beyond rational critiquing. But what Pali showed, and getting back to your earlier question as well, scientific ideas start with an image. Mm -hmm. And he wrote an essay trying to show how some of his theories came out of dream images. Mm -hmm. So that the, the symbolic life can be seen at the foundation of science. And a genuine religious life is not belief, but it's religious experience based on images that appear within the psyche. So that giving up the idea that science is rational and that religion is metaphysically unarguable both have to change for the adoption of the, of the symbolic life. Mm -hmm. You say that Pauli had a foot in both worlds. Would you say that the same was true of Jung? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Jung, you know, more toward the end of his life, I think, uh, as I mentioned, he w would necessarily have devoted his attention to, attention to the psyche. Mm -hmm. At the end of his life, you know, he had that tower down in Balligan. Mm -hmm. He added the tower, um, the highest point in the, um, in the structure, mm -hmm. because he realized he hadn't given enough credence to the ego. Oh. So he worked intensely on the inner world, and then I think toward the end of his life was was realizing the crucial point is how that relates to the outer world, but he needed to focus on the inner world because that's what his research, um, uh, where his research could bear the most fruit. But then toward the end of his life, as I mentioned in that quote of von Franz said, now... How does all this relate to the outside, outside material world? Mm -hmm. One of Pauli's dreams that you look at in your book is his dream of the world clock. Yeah. You say that the dream was trying to show Pauli that he could not understand life without accepting its complexity. Yeah. There's a heart in the vision, in the dream, there is a clock which is on a horizontal plane, and there's a clock which is on a vertical plane and they intersect and I think they're these two are resting on the back of a bird right but the Greeks had that all figured out and we've forgotten it but I think Pauli was being dreamed was dreaming of it time has both a qualitative and a quantitative aspect mm -hmm. we've lost the idea of the quantitative aspect yeah. uh, that's what a synchronicity is and the complexity is really, we both have to, uh, is, yeah, is revealing, we both have to have our feet firmly in time and space, deal with the problems that are facing us, deal with emotions, deal with conflict, uh, deal with rage, lust, problems, conflicts. On the one hand, that's the horizontal clock. Mm -hmm. And yet there is a timeless dimension of that, which is what the vertical clock would represent. There are qualitative moments in our life, which if we don't understand, we will lose the meaning of everything that happens in that horizontal circle. Mm -hmm. And the art of living is living with the knowledge of the importance of time and space, and also what transcends time and space. You said of that dream... It is being suggested that Pauli look very closely at the events of his life and take responsibility for his role in them. This is what ego development is about, right. observing behavior and taking responsibility for it. That's the horizontal clock. Mm -hmm. That's why Jung is not a mystic. 
you know, paying rent, paying mortgages, paying car, getting your car fixed, arguing with the car mechanic. Um, as Jung said, I wonder what Christianity would be like if Jesus had three kids to put through college. <laughs> right. All of that is very important. Yeah. And it's only when we are living responsibly to those demands that spirituality really can reach its full extent. And that dream of Pauli's uh, that we were just speaking of, the, the one of the world clock, is in a section of the book called Dual Mandala. Yes. You said, a dual mandala is a living image which portrays that a single life is made up of two parts, the here and now and something else. Yeah, that something else is that vertical clock. Mm -hmm. uh, it's those kairos moments in which we are guided toward our own development in a way which we cannot rationally understand. And until we can recognize the tension between the two or similarity between the two, the, 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 uh, the sinking between S-Y-N-C, mm -hmm. um, between the two, we're only living half a story or a very split story. Mm. In the subtitle of your book, which is Synchronicity and Jung's Spiritual Testament, I'd like to talk a little bit about that second part of that subtitle. You said Jung was interested simply in the existence of the spirit and how it functions in human growth. So what does synchronicity have to do with that? Well, let me give you a working definition of spirit. Okay. This is from Franz's book, uh, Number and Time, that we oh, were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's her paraphrase. A, a spirit is the creation and ordering of images in the inner field of vision. We have a dream. We understand it. The next dream comes along, and the understanding in that dream goes a step further than the earlier dream. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why do dreams develop into deeper and fuller presentations of issues? Why don't they just keep going around the same circle? Yeah. Jung says, well, because there's something in us doing that, and that something is what he calls spirit. Mm -hmm. It's the teleological drive, it's a bad word, but teleological drive in the psyche to move life forward. That's what a synchronicity is. Okay. It is an appearance in the outer world of what wants to create the future. You said Jung's work strives to be true to this question. Who have I been meant to be from day one? And what do I have to go through to become that? For Jung, we are born who we are. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, I don't know if anyone else talks like that in the psychological field. You know what that reminds me of? I studied astrology and our birth chart is a snapshot of the sky the moment we were born. Yeah. That's why that makes sense to me. It's uh, a fundamental assumption of Jung. It's not that who we are is predestined. That is a very important point to clarify. But the potential right. is in there. You are born to be a plumber or a carpenter or a hat maker. That's putting it a little too simply. But the idea is the potential to be those things is in there. And what we try to do in Jungian analysis is always keep our eye on that real 
person that's trying to come into being. And no matter how rotten things get in life, never to lose sight of that. And when we, I feel, when the therapist sees that, all this talk about technique and God knows what, other methodologies, is just a load of baloney. It's a substitute for the therapist seeing who that person really is. I'll tell you a personal story. When I went to Zurich, I worked with the worst Jungian analyst in the whole world. Uh-uh. <coughs> he almost killed me. I, killed you. He almost killed you. He almost killed me. I mean, he was so bad, I was so upset that one day I left his office and I looked up and there was a train barreling down on me. He just, what he did, he took all my dreams of science and he said, why are you here in a Jungian training program if you're dreaming of science? Mm. You see, that science is part of who I am. And and I started having dreams of going crazy. Mm. And he told me I should go see a psychiatrist because I was schizophrenic. I was latently schizophrenic. It's not bad it got. And I I was just at wit's end. And I did some shopping around and went to see the woman I end up working with. And I was talking about my background. I said, yes, I have a, this degree and I have a degree in theology. She said, without even knowing me, she said, a degree in theology? You're a scientist. Why'd you do that? She could feel who that self in me was. Those violent dreams disappeared in a second. That's Jung's idea. That's what we have to keep our eye on. You also mentioned the difference between therapy and depth work, referring to therapy as a simple-minded therapeutic approach and depth work by following instead the purpose of the events in our lives. Yes. In other words, once we have a feeling for who that person is, and often it's something the therapist can't, re- or the analyst can't really articulate, but you kind of have a sense here we're on track, here we're not on track, then you're not trying to fix anybody. You're not trying to say, oh, let's get rid of this problem. You're looking at a bigger perspective. Here you are. Here's where you're going to, here's where you're going to go. What's the role of what you're going through now in getting you? Is it harming you? Is it maybe secretly announcing to you what your real problem is? What, sorry, what your real goal is? Opening the question up to a wider framework uh, in the context of of your a priori identity. Mm-hmm. Getting back to Pauli, you also spoke about the power shadow of science. Yeah, we haven't touched on that yet. <clears throat> you said science may say it's about knowledge, but it's really about control. We want to know the world to control it, and it's without value capacities. That's something which has always bothered me from the time I was an engineer in training in uh, undergraduate school. I think you see it so alive today, that problem of if if something can be done, it must be done. Mm -hmm. And we never stop to say, is it really necessary to do that? How do we take this very valuable capacity we've achieved to create systems which can affect the world and not simply make our decisions on their effective effectiveness but on their value 
I think one of the things that Pally has contributed here, something maybe I would be able to work on in the future, I'm not sure, but how do dreams of scientists show them what of their work is valuable and what isn't? Mm -hmm. You said that Pally's dreams show his coming to terms with his own power issues. Right. Yeah. I think that's what shocked him so much about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that that the tremendous power science had developed uh, was used destructively. And in his own life, I believe he he had a, a very strong tendency to control others. So it was a, in a personal and a and a collective theme in his life. Pally said, "What science called knowledge was a very limited understanding of what knowledge is, because it can only." You can only investigate what is repeatable. I was working with a guy once, and we got rid of his diabetes in analytic work. Mm -hmm. Now, it stayed away for about two years it returned, but it gave him a two-year reprieve. Mm. I told that to a medical doctor. By the way, my analysis endocrinologist just about had a heart attack when he saw it disappear. I'm sure. Um... I told that to a medical doctor, and, he's, and I said to him, and that's a fact. He said, no, it's not. It's an anecdote. A fact is only what's repeatable. That's the basis of the power drive. That's what allows us to control. But that was real for that man. Mm-hmm. His diabetes went away. Science wouldn't recognize it as a fact. That's an anecdote. Didn't Pally say even if something occurs only once, it's a fact? It's a fact. Right. You also mentioned that science has always moved forward by taking what is not explainable and developing a paradigm to explain it. Right. So are we moving in that direction? We're trying to. Uh, you know, Rupert Sheldrake, you know his work? Oh, yeah. He, he, his talk was banned from TED. Yep. That's a perfect example. Yeah. Um, I don't know if everything he says is accurate, but I certainly respect the spirit he is bringing to science, let's investigate some of these phenomena which don't fit our established paradigm. And what happened was scientists voted him off TED. You had mentioned that the great thing about Pauli was that he was always questioning what is knowledge. It's not that the facts are wrong sometimes, it's that science is wrong. Theories, uh, science has become a, a prejudice that admits certain phenomena and denies other phenomena, rather than being a methodology for uncovering what's going on. Mm-hmm. Also, that Pauli's dreams kept coming back again and again and again when you discuss, uh, actually on your website, you have a wonderful collection of your lectures, the audio you've made available on your website, jgsparks.net, and uh, I'll put a link to that up on my Thank website. You that for us it was an advantage because his dreams kept coming back again and again and again. And because of that, we got to see more of what his unconscious was trying to communicate. But that because of Pauli's stubbornness, it was actually to our advantage. Because we kept seeing what the unconscious was driving home to him in a variety of images. You know, what is so difficult maybe to understand here is If you've been through any kind of dream work, you probably get a sense how dreams have got something to speak to you personally. It's a bigger jump to realize that dreams have something to 
speak to us as a society. Mm -hmm. And just like it's a shock to swallow bitter pills about yourself with personal dreams, this is what we have to do with societal issues, and that seems to be hitting a very thick brick wall. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that science as we know it does not have any way to investigate spirit. Where do we see spirit? In synchronicity, right. which by definition is a unique event. If your methodology only acknowledges what's repeatable, you're cutting out a huge dimension of experience. Right. Pauli would say, I don't want to live in a split world. We have to combine the two and have a unified worldview. That, I believe, is the challenge for the future. There are scientists uh, working in that dimension. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned Sheldrake. Uh, there is the Noetic Society, a fellow named Dean Radin is yes. working in that. Oh, yeah. Um, I just got an email from another fellow who taught at Stanford. I'm trying to remember his name. This is coming into awareness, although it's hotly uh, resisted by uh, so-called true scientists. You noted the shift from alchemy to science, and you said there will be another shift, and we are seeing the beginnings of it in Pauli's dreams. I think there has to be, yeah. Away from power. Toward relationship, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. A relationship to the material world, a recognition um, of the effectiveness of something other than willpower and something other than causality. Mm -hmm. You said you will see in your own psyche the attempt of the collective unconscious to move you forward to being one of those people that helps bring this new paradigm into being. Right. That there is a soul in matter. Certainly, that is what Jung tried to do in his psychology. Mm -hmm. Show how that works in the one-on-one -on -one analytic discussion. Spirit in matter. Right. The guidance coming through material world. Mm -hmm. Dream being in the material world, if you will. Synchronicity where inner images and outer material events operate together and matter functions symbolically. symbolically yeah. You said Jung realized there is a living quality to matter which shows us guidance along the way of our psychological journeys. This guidance appears in chance events which are more than chance and which clearly contain meaning for the orientation and direction of our lives. I think that's so important because with synchronicity and with people experiencing synchronicities, they don't take it forward. Right. What's the synchronicity trying to tell you? There's a phrase Jung uses about somebody, I forget, but he said he... he he marvels, but he doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. The danger is we marvel at these things, but we don't ask, what is it trying to teach me? What attitudes must I adjust? What future responsibilities do I need to shoulder? Right. It reminds me of something I heard Von Franz say. I still can't pronounce her name. You got it right. Was that right? Von Franz. Von Franz. Von Franz. Yeah, well. Not yet. I haven't gotten it down yet. That... We have dreams, and we might mention them at the breakfast table and then go on with our day. Like, yeah. And la, la, la. Yeah. And same with synchronicity. Really important that we scrutinize them, hear from them, learn them, critique them, interpret them, and always say, what's the meaning? How am I to respond to this? What's the meaning, and how am I to respond and to am this? And am I to change as a result of this? Is there an attitude in me that it's addressing that I need to change? Whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. 
You said the dream is not only limited to the inner world. This is one of the facts Jung had to face in his work on synchronicity. Right. And I think toward the end of his life. Going back to von Franz. Well done. Okay. She said that matter is numerically structured. Right. And so is the psyche? Yes. That's the basis of number and time. Number and time. In a, in a nutshell, the things you might point to in, let's say, in the atom is the, the fact that there are only discrete levels of energy possible within the atom. Mm-hmm. One times that teensy value, two times that teensy value, which is Planck's constant, doesn't matter, three times. So that there's a, there's a numeric, numerical regularity taken to the psyche. The psyche has a numerical structure in the sense that a life lived is an ongoing story. Mm-hmm. First segment of the story, second segment of the story, third segment of the story. Act one, act two, act three, if you will. So that the nature of matter and the nature of the psyche share numbers as their common element. Um, I think she will be the first to say it's a suggestion. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the real link is. But for her, it's what makes synchronicity possible. It's an attempt to explain the common element in psyche and matter that makes uh, synchronicity possible. Mm -hmm. You said synchronistic moments unite two sides of life, our insides and our outsides, in a single image. Right. That Pauli went to Jung not as a patient, but as a man of conscience. That, that was in the, I think the first visit to Jung, you know, in 1928 was as a patient. Um, the second visit to Jung in those 50 dreams that were shared, he wasn't unable to function by any means, but he was distressed. What can I add to the dialogue around the future of science? Mm-hmm. There, I think he had a very acute conscience. One of the things that kept me doing my inner work Mm -hmm. was that my analyst told me, work on yourself affects your community, your environment, and your world. And when I hear people talk about world peace, I always wonder, what are you doing for your inner peace? You said the inner journey, if it's done at sufficient depth and long enough, leads outward. What we discover about ourselves is also relevant for our times. I love that. I love it too. That, I hope, will be one of my projects in the future. We've talked a little bit about uh, Mm -hmm. historian Arnold Toynbee, um, who put at the the, uh, center of historical change people who did just that. Mm -hmm. And then he, so there he and Jung are saying the same thing, Mm -hmm. where he then takes takes it is to show not just how important that is for the individual, how important that is for the society. Right. You said inner work is good for the society if it's completed and if we can communicate to the world what we've learned about ourselves as a model of what the society needs to learn about itself. That's exactly what Toynbee was driving at. And, And if that voice can be heard and taken seriously then the society has got um, some direction for its own growth. It's a big if. Mm-hmm. And you're working on that now? Hopefully, I'll get that done by the end of the year or certainly uh, by the winter. Well, I'll look forward to that. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for your wonderful questions you're and beautiful spirit. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful discussion. 
And I hope we can do it again soon and talk uh, about your other book, Valley of Diamonds. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Gary. Mm-hmm. So that was my first interview with Gary. And as much as we covered, I cringe when I realize how much we didn't have time to cover. So we're already planning our next interview. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for information about Gary's two websites, as well as links to the books we discussed. With eternal gratitude to Liz Jefferson, Daryl Sharp, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <music>